Well, we've had a lot of Bible uh, already this evening, and the part of the Bible that we're going to be looking at together, let me just read it for us so we've got it clear in our minds as to which bit it is. It's uh, Mark 15, uh, 33 to 39, and we've just had it beautifully read out. Let me just read it to us once more so we can see the, uh, the, the whole. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebechthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And we just had this bit read out. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So my friends, uh, my task this evening, we've had uh, some beautiful scripture readings, some uh, beautiful music. My task this evening is to show you that when we see what the centurion saw, which is the way Jesus died, when we see that, we will say what he said, which is that uh, truly this is the Son of God. That's my task in the next few minutes to show you that when we truly understand what the cross is about, and there are so many different interpretations, of course, aren't there, of what happened at the cross. Uh, They range from, did Jesus really exist? Did he really die? Uh, It's an example of uh, moral living. It's uh, a message that's meant to be a kind of reproach. God sent Jesus to die. We must be very bad people, that kind of thing. Um, There's so many different interpretations of the cross. Uh, But my case this evening from uh, God's Word is that when we see what the centurion saw, then our response will not be sadness, it will not be reproach, it will not be uh, religiosity and bondage and guilt. Our response will be freedom and joy, and um, a new way of living, uh, saying that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. Let me read you um, one hymn that expresses this very well. It's written by someone called Augustus Toplady. Um, if you're thinking of naming your child something, you could pick Toplady. That's my recommendation. Augustus Toplady goes like this. This is uh, his very famous hymn. He says, A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, not all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. 
Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. In other words, he knows exactly where he's going, even before he dies and go to heaven because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Or, when we see what the centurion saw, uh, we will say, surely this is the Son of God. Or the question then is, what did the centurion see? And Mark, as he's telling uh, this story, this is Mark's gospel, it's one of the four gospels in the New Testament that are written to explain to us why Jesus came and what he did. And of course, they're in the Bible, and the Bible is a book of many different books. It's really a library of books. And miraculously, the Bible as a whole has a coherent message, and the message of the Bible is essentially, we were in paradise, but we're not anymore. There is darkness, the darkness over the land is symbolizing the darkness that we feel, the darkness of death, the darkness of sin, the darkness of depravity. That's the reality, the Bible says, of our human condition, and yet God has a redeeming plan. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are each designed to tell us what that redeeming plan is and show us how it is uh, focused in Jesus. And Mark, Mark's Gospel, has a particular take on that explanation. And what Mark says is, he says right at the beginning, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right at the heart of everything that Mark is saying is that we need to see who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And he tells the story over and over again in different ways in Galilee, the north of the country, and then on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem, which is where the passage, of course, that we're reading tonight is located. He's telling these different sub-stories of his larger story to get his readers to ask themselves the question, who is this? Who could this be? Who is this guy? Who is this? And then right at the end, in a moment of what would have been for the original readers, astonishing shock. The person who gets it is a Roman centurion. Now, just think about that. If you were a Jewish reader at the time that this was written, who your enemy was, the occupying power of Rome, the Roman imperial power, a centurion, a soldier, he's the hero. He gets it. It would be like, to put it into contemporary terms, it would be like today, someone uh, writing a uh, novel, or a Ukrainian writing a novel, and the person who understands the detective and novel and sees the puzzle fits, the person who sees it in the novel written by a Ukrainian would be a Russian colonel of, a, of an army. He sees it, the Roman centurion. It's amazing. How could he see it? What, what is it that he sees that makes him say that uh, Jesus is the Son of God? And Mark here in this story gives us some options. He, he talks about the darkness. It's from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's from about 12 noon to about 3 p.m. or so. There's darkness over the land. Is that what the centurion sees? It certainly would have been um, something that would have been remarkable to him, uh, Tacitus, an ancient historian, and Josephus, a, uh, a, another a Jewish ancient historian, uh, both remarked somewhat later when the temple was destroyed that there were various omens 
prodigies, uh, signs in the heavens that something bad was going to happen. And so in those days, they would have noticed this kind of thing and they thought, well, maybe it was a solar eclipse. Maybe it was a kind of, uh, there's a particular sort of weather formation that scholars know about in that area of the world that can create this kind of darkness. Uh, but in those days, they would look to those things and thought, well, something ominous is happening. And you would have thought then the centurion would, we would have recorded that he would say, this darkness must mean that, but he doesn't, it's not the darkness he sees. Is it what uh, Jesus says, uh, verse 34, the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebechthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, uh, is it that that the, uh, uh, the centurion hears and, and, and sees and therefore interprets what the cross means by what Jesus says when he's quoting, of course, from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. And perhaps the centurion was a God-fearing centurion. He would have perhaps heard the scriptures in a synagogue or something like that. And maybe the centurion heard Jesus' quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, Eli, Eli, lemesebechthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't make the mistake of the others who thought that Jesus was quoting Elijah because Jewish legend had it that when someone was in a difficult situation and uh, they were really, it was a horrible problem that they had one kind or another, then Elijah might come and rescue them. But he doesn't understand it that way. Perhaps the centurion maybe understands what Jesus is really saying, which is that he is now fulfilling the whole Psalm 22, which finishes, the final part of Psalm 22 says, it is finished, which is what Jesus says in, a, in the other Gospels we hear from the cross it's finished in other words what Jesus is saying is not it's all gone wrong my God my God why have you forsaken me what he's saying is I'm fulfilling the whole of what's been promised from the Old Testament I'm fulfilling the scriptural promise to being the redeemer because I'm being forsaken so that they could be forgiven and at the end he'll say it's finished I've done it now is that what the centurion uh, uses to interpret uh, the cross Clearly, uh, Mark intends us to have all that in our mind, but he doesn't say that's what the centurion sees. What does he say the centurion sees? What he says is, verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Well, the question then is, what does he mean by in this way? Well, uh, two verses before, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And so then, when the text says, the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, he's referring to the loud cry that Jesus uttered when he died, when he breathed his last. Now, why on earth would that persuade the Roman centurion that Jesus was the Son of God? There have been all sorts of controversies down through the years as to whether it should be translated the centurion saying Jesus was a son of God, which is really a misunderstanding of the Greek because in Greek grammar, the predicate of a noun before the verb doesn't need, a, 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 a definite, doesn't need the article. So it's a perfectly good way of saying son of God. And in any case, Mark isn't saying that the Roman centurion understood everything that there was to understand about Jesus being the incarnate son of God because after all, who does? And certainly not the Roman centurion. 
And Christians have had to reflect on that truth for for aeons. And he's not saying that the centurion gets it all. He's saying that within his mind, and you remember that Roman centurion, probably a pagan, and that Romans uh, would have viewed that their, their kings, Augustus, when he died, was declared a god. And we know that Vespasian, a little bit later, when he was dying, joked because the tradition was that an emperor who died would be viewed as divine, joked that I'm, I'm about to die, dear me, I'm becoming a god. And so the Roman centurion had this in his mind. He's seen Jesus, who's been declared to be the king of the Jews, and he's seeing him dying, and the way he's dying, he's realizing that actually in his probably very confused mind about what it means to be divine that whatever that is it's him he's son of god not the not the caesar the christ he's son of god but what is it that he sees that generates that confession. The Roman centurion would have seen many people crucified, of course. And crucifixions, when you're, when you're crucified, the, the reason why you die is not through the nails, through your ankles or your, 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 um, uh, the, the, the arms, the hands. Uh, it's, uh, it, and, of course, they cruci- the reason why there's controversy as exactly how someone was crucified is because they crucified hundreds and thousands, and they did it in all sorts of different ways. But the, what, what, the, the way you were crucified... You, weren't, you didn't die from the nails. What you died from was asphyxiation. You suffocated. It could go on for days. <gasps> Trying to take a breath. <gasps> take another breath. And the end, you suffocated. But what Jesus does is not that. Uniquely in that centurion's experience. And uniquely among anyone who's ever died on, in the whole history of the universe, in its divine um, intentionality, Jesus gives himself. The loud cry is not a cry of desperation. It's a cry of, it's finished and now I'm dying. Even at the cross, Jesus is completely in charge of when he dies. And at the cross, he's giving himself away. Surely, Son of God. See, this is the way it works. There's a man called Vijay Menon who was a Hindu and became a Christian. And Vijay Menon... Um, grew up in India and saw various Christians who went through Good Friday experiences and he was very confused by the whole thing because it seemed as if the Christians were just sad and he couldn't figure out what it was about. And, And then he came to London and he heard a preacher explain to him what the cross was actually about. And Vijay Menon in his autobiography that describes how he became a Christian says he learnt that evening One evening, one talk, one sermon, two things. First, Jesus died for him, personally. Jesus died for the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims. He died for you, personally. 
Second, there was nothing that he could do to earn it. It's free. Utterly and completely free. He breathes his last. He gave himself for you. And the question that Mark wants you to ask is, what are you going to do about that? And I know, I know, you think, well, if I really think it's free, then doesn't that mean that I can do whatever I want? Isn't that morally dangerous? No, you misunderstand. The Psalms put it like this. With God there is forgiveness, therefore he is feared. When you truly grasp that it is all grace, you're a debtor to mercy alone. And if God utterly freely and completely graciously and totally of his own sovereign desire and love for you personally gives himself to save you that you might not die, that you might not be judged, that darkness might not be your experience because he took the darkness in himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. If God did all that for you, Now that changes your story, the story of your life. Indelible grace. A debtor to mercy alone. When you see what Jesus truly did, then you say what the centurion said. Let me pray for us, and then we'll continue singing. Oh Lord God, thank you so much for this beautiful evening and all that we've enjoyed here with the scriptures are read and the, and the singing and the music. We pray, Lord, that we will leave tonight with a clear vision in our minds of how the cross is a rescue mission for us. And therefore, Lord, that you are Son of God. And we bow before you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.